Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season two premiere of the Film Score podcast. I'm so happy to be back, and I hope that you're happy to have a whole new slate of composer interviews on the way. The premiere episode is an interview with Sophia Holtquist, a.k.a. Drum and Lace. Sophia is an Italian electronic musician and composer who has been really busy recently. She's been scoring the hit show Dickinson on Apple Plus and the very recently canceled Good Girls on NBC, both of which were with her partner Ian Holtquist, who himself is a great film and TV composer. She also recently did the very, very divisive Netflix film Deadly Illusions, which is a pretty wild, campy trip. I can't guarantee that you'll like it, but it was a pretty interesting watch and maybe an even more interesting response from the viewership community at large. Sophia also has a ton of stuff in the works. A few of them are a bit too early to talk about, unfortunately. I've maybe gotten uh, a name or a very brief idea as to what it might sound like. But she's also working on the upcoming Amazon series, I Know What You Did Last Summer, based, of course, on the film from the 90s, and some horror projects, some of which are on Netflix. So she's very busy, got a ton of stuff going on, and I'm really excited to hear how they turn out. As always, new interviews are going to be coming every two weeks, starting today. And I've got a ton of great composers. Some of them are indie or maybe not too well-known or up-and-coming, and some of them, fingers crossed, are going to be pretty darn big names. In the meantime, enjoy the episode. You can check out more of my stuff and more of Sophia's stuff on our respective social media accounts and websites. And if you're digging this, remember, subscribe, leave a review, a rating, all that jazz. Now, more importantly, let's get down to it. I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? Hanging in there. I feel like um, I'm just coming out of like three, four months of really, really intense work after, you know, like a 2020 that wasn't as busy as, you know, obviously everyone expected. So um, it's been good to be back at work, but also my life has been kind of this like cyclical, like wake up, work, take care of family repeat kind of thing for since essentially February. So it's it's a little exhausting. I'm ready for a break. Well, I'm not surprised. I'm I'm actually a little surprised though that you said 2020 wasn't as busy as you expected just because at least on paper there were like so many projects you worked on that came out in 2020 or 2021. You know, like Good Girls Dickinson, Deadly Illusions that just came out like 2 months ago or so. So it looks like you've just been nonstop. Yeah, that's just what happens, you know, with things taking a while to come out because I essentially I actually Gave birth and had a daughter in March 2020, which is like the worst timing ever. Congratulations. Thank you. And I worked literally, I was sending stems to my score mixer as I was driving to the hospital. But then, you know, from March 2020 to September 2020, like I didn't do anything at like no scoring at all. Also because, you know, I told my agent like, oh, just let's start looking at stuff in July. And then of course, July, there was like nothing to look for. So surprisingly, I got like six, seven months completely off in 2020, even though it might not seem like it in paper. And personally, I feel like things on my front in terms of what's been coming out has been really quiet. But there's a lot that's about to come out in the fall. So I feel like it's going to be like a onslaught of social media to friends and stuff. Is it too early or can you talk about any of your upcoming projects? 
I can talk about a few. So one of them finally kind of got announced yesterday at Comic-Con, and it's an Amazon TV show, and it's loosely based off of the 90s uh, movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer. So it's uh, it's a show instead of a movie, and, you know, it's slasher, horror. I'm assuming, you know, I guess people would call it more kind of like YA because it is old teenagers, early, you know, 18, 19, 20. So that's been really fun to work on, and that's something that is coming out in the fall, and now I don't have to bite my tongue because it's going to be like a Halloween it's going to be like a Halloween release which is great my scoring partner Ian and I just wrapped on a Netflix movie called Night Teeth which I actually don't know the release date but I think it's going to be the fall and that was really that that was really fun I mean it's literally mixing right now and uh, it's like an action action movie uh, without giving too much away and um, it has a really great cast and the score is like fully super like electro like big electro which is going to make for a really fun score release hopefully working on dickinson season three which i think the release date for that is also kind of a limbo but you know it'll be out within the next year for sure and then good girls just wrapped we finished it two weeks before the final episode aired this past thursday and now we're done because the show got canceled unfortunately and i think well and then i have two movies that i'm working on um, which I can't talk too much about, but I think that's I think that's everything. So yeah, and even if you can't talk about those last two, I mean, it's pretty clear that you've got a ton going on. Yeah, I also just finished my record, so that's been in the mix. And it's nice because it's been a bit of a counterweight, you know? There's all the scoring stuff, and then my personal music is a nice balancing out because it makes me feel, it gives me a little bit more of like a personal sense of purpose. But it's it's just, it's been a lot, so I haven't really left the house at all. In a while. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. And I know that obviously your debut album is still in the wings, And but what's it like balancing the release of just solo personal music and then music for media? Because a lot of your solo stuff is much more electronic based and your like your film work and TV work, some of it is, some of it isn't. Like mm-hmm. Deadly Illusions... I'm sure there's like electronic elements in there, but it's much more piano driven. How do you balance those two? I think the art, my artist side is truly like what the music that I like want to be doing all the time. You know, it's I think it's a real representation of me as as an artist and as a human. And the scoring stuff, I feel like it poses more of a challenge because it's more of trying to like elevate someone else's vision and some what someone else needs. Very often I'm able to use elements of what I like to do, obviously, and one gets hired to hopefully do the projects that they are suited best suited for. But I think that with film scoring, I can lean into more traditional ways of writing you know like on deadly illusions it was the director and i from the beginning were like we you know wanted to be like an intimate kind of like string quartet sound with piano just because that whole movie you know was like a nod to campy 90s 80s movies which you know was kind of i think lost on a lot of people i think a lot of people were trying to take the movie really seriously and it's like absolutely not a serious movie (laughs) uh and i mean you you mentioned you watched it i mean it's just it's it's ridiculous, but it makes it's like pure entertainment kind of thing. So, you know, on a score like that or then on a documentary that I co-scored again with Ian um, called that at the heart of gold. That was a lot more um, string driven as well. But yeah, so I guess my personal projects are the things that like I'm feeling that I'm just, you know, need to get out of myself. Whereas the film stuff is just trying to like do best by the movie or by the TV show. And do those two ever align where like you're partway through writing a score and then like the, the personal side 
ends up coming out anyways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of times that while I'm experimenting and trying to find a palette or sound for a specific TV show, for example, that I'll come across a sound that doesn't fit the TV show necessarily, but it'll be something that I'll just kind of either sample and record and then just put, I have a bunch of folders on my computer that's like to sort or to use later kind of things. So those will kind of go into that folder or that bank. And then um, when it comes time to like me wanting to write, I can go through these folders and be like, what triggers like a, a new idea for a song. And I, I guess it works the other way around too. Like a lot of times I'll start writing something for my own project and all of a sudden I'm like, mm, this doesn't really work with everything else. This doesn't really feel like me at the moment so then that'll be something that's like well but I can try this for this score that I'm working on so they very much inform each other and I, tr I try to keep some sort of separation just because I think it's important but even something like my vocals end up on scores anyway because then the showrunners or the directors will temp in stuff that has my vocals and they really like it so then you end up just kind of having to do not I'm not saying copy yourself but having to do like be yourself in a score as well it's got to be a little easier hearing temp stuff that's you rather than somebody else yes for sure e even though i have to say that when we got hired for season three of good girls there was a lot of another show tempt in and it was really hard to be like no this isn't that show we cannot use the same exact thing but then there's temp love and especially on a show like good girls which we got brought on season three and they'd had two composers one for season one and one for season two we just knew going in that they just hadn't been able to like nail down the sound of the show yet so I think the first season or like the honestly the first two episodes were really tough to be able to be like where do we stand and then I think that as we progressed it was great because by season four the notes were always like yeah so do something here but just make it really weird and not make it sound like tv now you can finally hear it because it's finally out on streaming platforms yeah that was actually good timing it came out what, yesterday, actually, on Friday? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it came out the day after the final episode. And NBC doesn't usually do score releases for their shows, but we had both showrunners and the music supervisors kind of advocating for us, mainly because I think everyone got tired of having people on Twitter asking for specific score moments that kind of sounded like songs, and they were like, we can't find it, like, blah, blah, blah. So that kind of was uh, an incentive for NBC to put it out. That's got to be a really cool feeling, having that very positive public outpouring for some of your music because I, I see the same thing about Dickinson as well that like mm -hmm. people love that show and they really love your Ian's music on it too so I mean what's it like having that public positive support yeah Dickinson has been wild and I mean it I'm more of like an Instagram person but seeing the fan base on Twitter is beautiful and also like I don't want to say scary because it's like all very exciting, but it's people are very into the show. And I think people are very into Haley Steinfeld and they, the showrunner Elena Smith makes herself very accessible and is very quippy on Twitter, too. So I think that she engages with the fans a lot. And it's been great. I mean, you know, when Split the Lark came out for season two, which is a song that we that Ian and I wrote with Emily Dickinson lyrics that Ella Hunt sings on screen, the fans were just like just so grateful and so enamored and just like got tagged in so many things and it just it keeps getting streamed so much and it's it's such a pleasure to be acknowledged because I think that you go into the scoring career because of course you know like all artists want some sort of recognition but you're also so in the background for most of the time that it is really easy to just not have people realize that there's like anything going on especially when something works you don't it doesn't stand out so then you like don't even 
realize it. But yeah, connecting with the fans has been fantastic. And I think season three will make it even more so just because I think that the fans are now like into it. So it's been really exciting. But then I guess you've gotten the opposite response. And it wasn't really, it wasn't about your music specifically, but like you already touched on it with Deadly Illusions. Mm-hmm. How do you cope or respond to such an across-the-board negative reaction towards a film like that? Yeah. So, you know, the same way that we just said with Dickinson, it's been so fulfilling and so wonderful, like people seeking us out and whatever. With Deadly Illusions, it was like the comments were never about the music. The comments were always about the film, but people felt like they had to tell me how they felt about the film. So especially on, I found, I posted about the soundtrack coming out on Facebook and a bunch of people found it because I guess they must have been Googling or like searching with Facebook, like Deadly Illusions. And they just like proceeded to having like a 15 comment deep conversation on my post about the soundtrack release talking about how bad the movie was and I felt so mortified because I was like oh my goodness but then at the same time it was the most watched movie on Netflix in the world for 13 days straight so it was watched like a billion minutes and I own all the rights to it because it was actually bought by Netflix so you know it's one of those things where it's like the jokes on them because now they've watched a billion minutes of it and the score is like wall to wall so It's better to work on a project that's polarizing just because I feel like people will know about it. I mean, I had friends from college. I had random people that I haven't talked to in like 15 years message me and be like, oh, my God, I just watched this crazy movie and I saw that you did the music. Like, what the hell is going on? That's the thing. It's like people talk about it and criticize it, but then they have questions and you're like, well, so you did kind of like it. (laughs) You know, you're somehow like emotionally invested in it. So, I mean, obviously it's not the same as working on like a big Marvel movie or something like that. I mean, I can't even imagine the kind of exposure to opinions with that. But I've definitely been able to now in this last year see kind of both sides of the coin. And, you know, I'm still getting jobs. So it's not like Deadly Illusions (laughs) was something that people hated so much. If anything, I think it brought, you know, my name out there to people being like, oh, who was attached to this crazy movie? It works out in your favor in that sense, too, because like the opening credits, like really slow and big and clear. So like, yeah, you see your name right up and center pretty quickly. That's such a mind boggling amount to think of, like a billion minutes. Mm hmm. Yeah. But, you know, like so many people have Netflix that it's just, you know, if everyone watches like 10 minutes of it, then I guess it racks up pretty quickly. But then I have to say there is also a subsection of people that loved it, that like have watched it multiple times. And, you know, it's been a minute since I looked up the hashtag. But the first day it was like, oh, no, I'm so upset. I'm so mortified. And then it just got really funny because it just started feeling like a bunch of memes. But yeah, and it's and it's funny because like the next two projects that I have coming up of my own are both horror movies. And I feel like those can also be very polarizing at times. And this is something that I'm just discovering as somebody who likes horror movies, but isn't like the biggest fan and finding myself working within this genre, that there's such a spectrum of types of horror movies that I'm excited that these two are kind of different. They're not exactly the same thing. So that'll be exciting to to see the reaction to those two. Have you started scoring them or at least working out ideas for what the the palette's going to be like? Yeah, so one of them I've been signed on to for a while and it's been announced and it's called Cobweb and it's a Lionsgate 
horror movie. And for this one, I've started kind of writing suites. So we kind of have an idea of thematically and stuff what's going on. It's currently on hiatus just because they're figuring out some creative stuff. But I haven't started scoring two picture per se. The other one is still so early on that it's it's in kind of like experimentation mode right now. And I'm really excited. I just got a new piece of gear that I think is going to be kind of like the secret key to kind of like working on that. But they're still very, very early on. Neither of them are going to be out until later in 2022, I think. I think you could say Deadly Illusions. It's not quite a horror. I mean, it's more of like a thriller. There's There's a lot of overlap between the two genres. Approaching these different projects that cover some similar ground. How do you decide what kind of sounds you want to use, what the the style is going to be? That's a good question. Most of the time, it just comes down to kind of temp music. And honestly, like the first conversations I'll have with the directors or the showrunners, most of the time, I feel like, you know, you'll, you'll have a meeting or a Zoom to meet with whoever is, you know, you're trying to get hired by. And these preliminary ideas that come up in that end up being something that everyone kind of holds on to so I think it's just like the seeds are planted very early on and I think you know every project asks for something different and like I mentioned at the beginning it's just a matter of just being able to be this chameleon that does a bunch of things but always within common ground like I really do think that if somebody were to listen to all of my scoring work there would be even though the genres might be different like there is definitely a lot of similarities especially I feel like maybe melodically. And that's a good thing because I think that people hire, you know, you you want to have your own sound. You don't want to be, a. I mean, some people thrive off of being a jack of all trades or a Jane of all trades. I don't know if there's like a gender neutral way of saying that, but I think for me, it's worked better to be more specific and to have my own sound just because I, I know that I don't want to do all sorts of projects. I very much want to do this slice of pie of the scoring world. What are some of the projects then that maybe you wouldn't want to do or that just might not resonate as much with you. So, and this might sound crazy because I feel like not many composers say this, but I, I'm not really interested in kind of like the superhero tangent nor kind of like the Star Wars. That whole kind of like larger orchestral sound at the moment is just not something that makes me excited, to be honest. And I really appreciate hearing people that do it really well. I'm definitely not really interested in doing like straight up comedy you know, just because I feel like as much as I love the challenge of comedic timing, which, you know, is, is really challenging, especially with working on Dickinson and having to be both drama and the comedy. And then as m- I love watching rom-coms, but that's something that I would tread lightly on. And I really find myself doing great and kind of like darker things. So anything that can be, you know, like the, the notes from people that I've worked on in the past is most of the time it's like, oh, it's too dark. So I think that just gravitating towards that is definitely the way to go. Interesting. That makes sense. I mean, what do you think it is that pulls you towards those darker elements in both in your music and then in the projects you'd be interested in? I think it's definitely the use of electronics. I think it's the use of more kind of like pure elements of synthesis. If you're working with very basic audio waves, a lot of the times once you start building, I just get drawn more towards edgier and more like acute sounds rather than like soft and round. Or when I'm recording field recordings to create pads or create instruments, it'll always be something a little bit more abrasive, whether it's like a a screech or like something that's airy, but in like a very forced way. So I... I don't know. I think I'm just more drawn to sounds that aren't pretty necessarily. And just the nature of synthesizers and stuff, I think it's easier to go darker than lighter. And personally, I feel like a lot of times just bright sounds on synthesizers and in electronics just sound cheesy. So I stay away from that. 
Do you think, though, like somewhere inside you'd be at least intrigued by doing a project like that once just for the challenge and the novelty? Possibly. I do. I've done, you know, like happier things for commercial projects and things like that. And it's just it's really hard for me. It's really hard to do major key progressions. It's it's really strange. It always just sounds like very like sitting by the fire, like singing songs kind of thing. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past anything. And there's definitely moments, I mean, especially in Dickinson, where we just have to get really silly and have to just really do something that's ridiculous. But then, you know, you see it with picture and it really serves the purpose. So then you kind of like allow yourself to do it. But, you know, never say never. I don't know. We'll see. I'll keep my ears open for that. And then you've, you've mentioned, too, that there's quite a few projects that you've co-composed with Ian on. It was at the Heart of Gold, Dickinson, Good Girls. First off, how does the decision come whether the two of you are going to work on something or one or the other is going to work on something solo? So the, the way that it first started happening is that the first documentary that we did together, which was a fashion documentary called The First Monday in May, was the director's idea to bring me on just because at the time I was doing a lot of music for fashion content and fashion shows and videos and stuff like that. So the director just thought that it was going to be a good mesh to kind of have Ian and I work on it together. For At the Heart of Gold, I think the director for that also felt, even though that She'd had a previous working relationship with Ian, which continues to today. Um, Ian's working on her newest docuseries. She just felt like it was important since there was this availability to have a woman's perspective and voice in the music because of the subject matter of the documentary. And from there, you know, like with Dickinson, I think that they wanted to hire a woman. But to be honest, it was one of the first shows that were slated for Apple TV. And it was personally my big stepping stone. And I understand that studios have a hesitancy to hire a newbie. So I think that doing it with Ian just felt like a little bit more solid of a backing. And, you know, I'm really glad that Dickinson ended up being the two of us because there's production elements that Ian brings with his music that I definitely just don't have. Ian's sound is a lot more polished than mine is. And I think that's an important thing to have for some stuff. And ever since Dickinson, I feel like Good Girls just kind of came about and they wanted both of us. And then for this movie Night Teeth that's coming out, it was kind of the same thing where they were like, well, it'd be great if you did it together. And so it's it's always from, you know, the person that's hiring. It's usually their idea to hire us together. I've actually backed away from a project that we were supposed to do together because it was just, you know, at some point you have to kind of like also think about the interpersonal relationship and just be like, well, we can't do everything together. So it's exciting that like Ian has a TV show that he's working on on his own and then he has docu-series that he does on his own and I've got these two movies coming up so we've kind of told ourselves that anything that isn't strictly TV we'll try to do on our own and I think there's a huge advantage to working on TV with kind of like a scoring partner just because it's it's a lot you know scoring you have you're doing if it's 10 episodes a season you're doing 10 spotting sessions and then you're doing 10 score reviews and if you can kind of break up and take turns with doing that I think it really helps and it's helped us. I mean, that's interesting. You know, what's the what's the approach that you take to collaboratively score something and, and you know work together on a project? We're literally in the same room writing every single piece of music together. Like the room that you're seeing in the background here is and the keyboard that I'm sitting in front of is literally what we do everything together on. And at the beginning of working together, we had thought about the idea of maybe like because we do have two separate spaces that we write in of kind of like dividing and conquering. But to be honest, it just never 
seemed right. And there's just so much that gets lost in like file exchange and like the computer in this main studio has so many more plugins. We would literally just have to have a technical assistant here at all times, making sure that the computers, operating systems and plugins are all on the same version. And it's it's hard enough some days to get Cubase to work, let alone if you're trying to share sessions back and forth. So that was kind of like a technical deciding factor to work together. And then I think working on music at the same exact time takes out a lot of the second guessing. Because, you know, when you're scoring on your own, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I hope this works. I hope this is the right mood. But when you have someone else there either reinforcing that it is or telling you like, "Mm, I don't really know and coming in and kind of changing it and then you get back to it is really great. And one of us will usually start a cue and then, the you know, we'll take it as far as they can without it then being just adding things to add things. And then the other person will come in, add some more stuff. And then usually we do this exchange maybe like once or twice and then we'll be like, okay, and we're done. So it's a really nice and like organic process at this point. Interesting. Do you ever get to the point though where you run into an impasse where one of you wants, let's say one of you wants something and the other doesn't or you know something on those lines and, and how do you jump over those hurdles? Yeah, there's been there's been a few times, especially with I know what you did last summer, because the showrunner, even though it's a horror show, likes it to be pretty simple and more like atmospheric than kind of like very, very, very in your face. So there'll be, you know, like bigger horror moments. And it's so easy to go overboard and to just like add a bunch of stuff. And it'll usually be Ian that wants to add more things. And I'm like, no, we don't need it. There's going to be dialogue. There's going to be all the sound design, whatever. And he's like, no, but I think we should add it. So in the past, I've sometimes stood up and been like, absolutely not. And lately, I've just been like, you know what? Let's put it in and see what they say. And then we'll be at the score review. And the showrunner will always say like, no, let's take that out. So that's just like a backhanded way for me to be like, well, I was right. So I think you just you have to be able to like allow the other person and you know like Ian's a saint for putting up with me because I know I'm not like an easy person to always deal with especially both on a professional and personal life and I blame it on the fact that I'm Italian and I just can't help it (laughs) but it just comes down to compromising and there's never been a time that we've had completely different creative visions you know we're usually pretty aligned so that's been helpful for sure we've never like fought a ton like really a lot a lot about a cue not yet Knock on wood that it doesn't happen now. (laughs) That's good. You know, I think, especially as you mentioned, keeping the interpersonal side of things, too, that's got to be something where if it would really reach a heated moment that you've got to back off and be like, you know, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think we the last four months, we've just both been really it's not really stressed out just because I think it's more like just exhaustion. And sure, I mean, stressed out some days when, you know, all of a sudden, like a project will be like, hey, can we have this now? And you're trying to finish an episode of something else. And But I think it's really easy to be extra snappy when you're super tired. And on top of just working as much as we have, which is fantastic. But back before the pandemic, we would have just been working 24-7. And then when you're done, you just like sleep for a whole day. But now that we have a 16-month-old, the priorities and things have really been realigned because it's like the mornings before she gets dropped off for to daycare or like have to spend time with her and then like she comes home in the afternoon and there's no working from like 4 30 p.m till 7 30 it's not optional it's something that we have to do and so there's not this like working around the clock which then makes it like parenting is like a full-time job in itself so i think we're just adapting to this new lifestyle but it's exciting because 
and any parent who might be listening to this knows this, it helps you reprioritize. And like we try to not work on weekends now. And that's actually made us more productive during the week because there's no more just like sitting around and faffing around during the daytime in the studio. When we're in here, we're working. You actually beat me to it because that's something that I did want to ask about working as a composer while also being a a relatively new mother as well. To me, that just sounds like such a difficult proposition. But I'm glad that it's actually both, I mean, worked out well and actually forced you to reprioritize things Mm -hmm. for the better. And I think as, again, super thankful that this has been happening, that like the projects that I've been getting has been slowly kind of like getting bigger and bigger. I think it also becomes easier to start saying no, because at some point, like the situation that Ian and I found ourselves in the last few months is just we don't have a full time assistant. So you just find yourself working on like three plus TV shows, two plus movies at the same time. And it's just not feasible. You know, you realize that you really need either like a bunch of additional writers or you need somebody to at least like be doing the busy work. And I think that we both learned that we should really just say only say yes to projects we really want to do. And I think that that's going to help with just being able to like have a life outside of working because it's so easy when you're younger or when you don't have kids or don't have as much responsibility to just work all the time. That's how people burn out. So as hard as it is being a new mother, it's also forced me to take a little bit more care of myself. I'm still like still exhausted and I feel like I (laughs) look like a crazy person. Well, you know, so far you've been able to keep it together. So so thank you. Yeah. And I've only had one coffee. I'm surprised. I've been up since 530. So it's uh, there's going to be plenty, plenty more coffee to come today. I I did want to then travel back in time a little bit. You know, you were writing a lot of solo things, releasing solo things, uh, singles, EPs, and then kind of this cascade of other media projects have come through. How did you get started into music and then how did that journey go? I know that you did a lot of work for scoring for fashion and for dance and things like that as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting. People that are in the scoring world see me as an artist that scores, whereas people in more of like the music industry artist world see me as a film composer that puts out music. And I think that's just because I kind of didn't get to the next little step of things in my artist career until I started scoring and now they've kind of been informing each other so they've been growing at the same time which is fantastic but again it just means a lot of upkeep and it means that I'm essentially doing these two professions at the same time like and you know sometimes I'll be prioritizing one over the other and I'm kind of going through that right now where it's like the scoring stuff is just so much work but I have this record and I'm trying to like find the time to find a team to release it and like visuals and all the stuff that comes with that. But essentially, like I started writing as Drum and Lace, I think seven years ago when I was still living in New York and I'd been working as an in-house composer at like a music agency. And I just finally felt like, you know, after having gone to music school and then I went to grad school and worked at this company for a little bit. And I was like, I can I finally feel like I can venture off and be freelance and Drum and Lace really just kind of like grew out of a need to have a moniker to seem a little bit more legit too when approaching either like a fashion designer or someone else to be like, hey, like I'm doing this. It's not just like Sophia going out trying to like do stuff, you know. And interestingly enough, I only started releasing music because when I first moved to L.A., I didn't really, you know, obviously didn't really have that many scoring gigs. So I was just writing and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put it out because there's DistroKid and I can just like literally upload it and just have it be out. And surprisingly, people 
caught on to it. And then people were like, well, are you going to start playing shows? And I was like, oh, my God, now I have to start playing shows as Drum and Lace. So then that started happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward to like 2018 when I played like, I think, 30, 35 shows that year. And then, you know, 2019 was the same thing. And then all of a sudden, you you know, you're releasing music regularly because fans are asking for it and you kind of see this avenue for it. And that's kind of how that all happened, because I never I don't think originally I set out for Drum and Lace to necessarily be what it is today, like on an artist side. But I'm super thrilled. And I think that that's why it's been so enjoyable, because I didn't have any expectations and now it's just it's like the fun avenue for stuff. I get to think about like, oh, shows involving dancers or like immersive audio or what can I do with video or like aesthetically. So it's it's kind of like reclaiming that side of myself as an artist. And it's and it helps a ton with scoring, because, of course, people, if they're thinking of hiring me, they can go and like scope out the whole world, sonic and visual world that I've created as an artist. And I think that incentivizes people to be like, oh, well, she's going to bring a very specific aesthetic to this. And that has definitely, I think, helped my scoring career a ton. So then because it's one moniker that has these two sides to its world that, like you said, inform each other and build off of each other, do you think there's ever going to be a time where you drop it and just go by, it's just Sophia? Or is that kind of the, the trajectory going forward? You know, I was talking to a um, a composer friend about this because he isn't a scoring, has composed with another person in the past who has had a moniker who has dropped it in favor of their own name. And, you know, they made a comment along the lines of like, well, you want to keep your own name for scoring and your artist name for other releases because otherwise their Spotify is just a bunch of like your curated covers and then a bunch of like awful looking scoring covers. Because let's be honest, like most film score covers don't look great. And, you know, I felt like a little personally attacked because I was like, oh, man, that's what my Spotify looks like. You know, it's like a bunch of my stuff. But then, of course, the scores are the most popular. So those like pop up. But for me, I think at the moment, it's important for me to have them be the same thing. Just because, as I said, like I've already kind of established this whole world with Drum and Lace. So it doesn't make any sense to not score as that because I think it gives people a very strong idea of like what to expect. At some point, maybe I'll revert back to my name. And I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think I'd probably revert back to my maiden name, actually, just because as I've been getting older and being Italian, but having a married name that's not Italian, oftentimes I feel this disconnect with who I am, and I don't sound, I don't have an Italian accent, so I think people completely, like, just don't realize. So it would be interesting to go back and score with my maiden name, which is Sofia degli Alessandri. But it's a mouthful, so it would... <laughs> I would have to be successful enough that people would care enough to try to spell it correctly. Or they they just go Sophia and that's that. Yeah, I could just I could just go by Sophia. That's true. All capitalized. <laughs> Talking about not quite like reclaiming your your roots, but staying connected to that. Is that something that you'd be interested in in the future, either working on Italian productions or at least productions that are more influenced by some like various Italian genres of film, like Giallo, for instance, mm-hmm. for like for whatever reason, feels like it's getting a huge resurgence yeah. in the U.S. in the last few years. I mean, I think that's why I'm excited to work on horror, just because there's been there's such a legacy of horror that comes from Italy, you know, even just with Dario Argento and his kind of work. And my agent knows this very well, and I've literally told her, please get me working on something in Italy because big streaming platforms like Amazon and Netflix now have Italian divisions or even HBO, you know, with like the new Pope. 
there's a lot of Italian productions happening right now. And I would love to be part of that. And we've actually, as a family, been discussing moving back to Italy just because I think that the positive change that's been happening in, in Italy in terms of technology and in terms of everything is because my generation or kind of like people that were my age kind of at 18 left home, you know, in the early 2000s just because it was there was nothing going on in terms of arts and technology. And people now are starting to move back, having gained all of this expertise and all of this knowledge and trying to go back to Italy and kind of like bring the country up to speed as much as I feel like it would be hard to leave like the very integrated kind of scoring lifestyle that we have here in LA I think it would be so wonderful to have a chance to build a community out there and Italy in terms of real estate is not that expensive and you know it could literally like get a house outside of the city and just like build amazing studios and just create the community that I would want to have out there so Italy in general is not very far away, I think, from my future. And it's nice now, too, where one upside of the pandemic is realizing how well people can do certain jobs remotely, and especially, too, for you, not being on the orchestral side of things as much, that you can do it a lot more. And as long as you have your equipment and an internet connection, like mm -hmm. you can do that anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, when when we were working on Good Girls, we used to go do spotting sessions in person on the NBC lot, which was very exciting as a composer, you know, to like go in every week. But now between having done season four via Zoom and with the way that things kind of look in a post-pandemic world, like I don't see there being in-person spotting sessions for a while. And on top of that, I feel like you kind of get to, I think, a level of projects, which I hope we're close to, where you don't necessarily need to be in LA networking all the time. And, you know, we've put in, we've been here seven years. So I think, you know, we've done a lot of the Society of Composers and Lyricists and ASCAP and, you know, a lot of the kind of networking that I think is really important to do when you're starting out because I think your community is what uplifts you. So I think it's important to be part of it and to know who's part of it. But I do also think that there's a huge advantage as a creative to seek out a better standard of living when you're not working. And I think that's really what's driving me to want to move somewhere else because when I'm not working, I want to be able to have the best of all worlds. And to me, that kind of feels like not here, to be honest. I don't know if it's because maybe I'm not American or lifestyle differences. And I mean, and you're completely correct, like with the fact that I'm not scoring like a Fast and Furious franchise or I'm not, I don't necessarily have to be here to work at any of the huge scoring stages. Ian is a different story because I think that's mm. more of his wanted trajectory. So that's kind of where we have been coming across some hesitancy. And, you know, I work with this ensemble in the UK called the London Contemporary Orchestra, and they are fantastic playing on scores as well. And I think Europe just has a better infrastructure for the government helping with grants and just kind of institutions being a little bit more artistically inclined. So I'm not I'm not too scared about the possibility of leaving, but it's definitely it's definitely hard because the industry's here. And I guess to one upside being in Europe is London in particular has, you know, some world round studios like Air and Abbey Road. People in the US don't realize this and it doesn't look like it on the map, but it's like, I don't know, an hour and a half plane ride from Italy to London. So it's not yeah. Like a crazy trip to do things out there either. 
Exactly. I mean, I think the distances are so much closer. And, you know, there is always the you could do half a year in L.A. and half a year somewhere else, which, you know, has always seemed like the dream. Now that I haven't been on a plane in two years, though, it sounds crazy because I like, can't believe how easy it was just to be like, I'm just going to hop on a plane. Whereas now it's just like so much more complicated. But yeah, who knows? Again, like not going anywhere for like at least a year just because like there's already projects now that are going on until like February, which is crazy. That does sound like the ideal, like, glamorous life of six months in Milan, six months in L.A. Yeah, I mean, it'd be pretty great. But then again, you remember that you have a kid and they have to go to school. So then that's also a good limitation because then at least it sets very clear boundaries that aren't work-driven, I guess. Before we really start wrapping up, staying on, on Italy for a little bit, are there Italian composers generally or in film that particularly influenced you or inspired you to move into film and TV? I mean, I think the obvious answer is Ennio Morricone, of course. But not, I mean, there's not many others. There's Ludovico Einaudi that's done some, like, film scoring adjacent stuff. And I think just Italian music, I, I feel like growing up, I always tended more towards kind of like a not super mainstream. So there's a lot of musicians uh, like the late Franco Battiato or Lucio Dalla. There's all of these very, very forward thinking, slightly more electronic artists. But I don't think they ever really did much scoring necessarily, um, because I think that more so before like the industry, you just really had to be in L.A., Italian cinema definitely influenced me a ton. When I was growing up, I didn't really think, first of all, I didn't really think that film scoring was like a career. And second of all, there just weren't that many women doing it at the time. So it just didn't even occur to me that it was something that I could do. So when I went to music college in Berkeley, I actually didn't set out to do the film scoring program. I just kind of fell into it because I loved Italian cinema and just kind of movies so much. But I, I do think that a lot of those, especially even things that I don't necessarily relate to musically, but, you know, spaghetti westerns and stuff like that that were just always on TV are definitely things that I feel like are just glamorous to me in terms of like scoring and stuff like that. Or, you know, obviously Cinema Paradiso, all of the Fellini movies, def definitely a big influence, whether I want to admit it or not. <laughs> I've got you on record admitting it, so you can't yeah, back away yeah, from it. Yeah, now, now it's out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you did raise something really interesting just now of when you were younger and interested in music, and despite being interested in film broadly, you just didn't think that film composing was necessarily a career that was open to you. And that's, which sucks, but it's something that I've had other female composers that I've talked to basically say the same thing that like when they were growing up there were no women film composers I just didn't think that that mm -hmm. existed was there a moment or like a period where you kind of had that realization that like no I, I can do this I mean it wasn't it really wasn't until college that when I started studying film composers more so than just kind of like superficial John Williams and James Horner and like you know all the, all of the bigger people because even finding out about Shirley Walker was not an easy feat finding out about her or uh, Rachel Portman you know like they, they weren't like people that were on the tip of um, everyone's tongue when you thought about film composers so it really took kind of like a researched approach to realize that there were other women that had done you know that there was a precedent at all and that was once I was already in the scoring program and I think the other thing that made it really interesting to me is that the scoring program was I'd say like 80% male and it was the same thing with my grad program because I did music technology at NYU and my class was 80, maybe even 90% male. So now I would, I love to think that 
both programs are a lot more kind of neutral in terms of gender and everything else and even in terms of like ethnicity and race and everything I'm, I'm hoping things have kind of been evened out a bit, little bit but it it is interesting I was talking to somebody a few years ago at this festival called Moogfest he's a composer who also played with Herbie Hancock and his name is Patrick Gleason and is this lovely man who is I think pushing 80 I don't know but he's still making music and he worked on Apocalypse Now which is insane and we were on a panel together about scoring at Moogfest and he said something along the lines that in the 70s and 80s to be a film composer you needed to own gear along the lines of like a sync clavier which could cost you you know 50 to a hundred thousand dollars so the amount of people that were able to do the profession was limited literally by the amount of gear that you had if you didn't have what it what you needed to do a film score it was just unaccessible so there's something beautiful about the accessibility of it now and i think that's why we are we're also seeing like diverse voices in in this world and I, again i'm just hoping that like a 17-year-old woman can now be on social media and see a bunch of women doing this and be like, oh, cool, I want to go study it. I think the same thing. You know, it, it's it's awful that it's taken, taken it this long for even that visibility to be there. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's so heartening to see that there's actually movement going on. And then yeah. especially, you know, not everyone cares about the award circuit. But that having Hilder Guth, the daughter, win for Joker and then John Batiste sharing in the Oscar for Soul mm -hmm. this past year, too. Which, yeah. like, first off, crazy to me that he was, like, the first black composer to win in decades. And she was, yeah. like, the second or the first woman to win in decades. Mm -hmm. Blew my mind. But yeah. the fact that these people are scoring major projects, mm -hmm. major accolades... And it's got me excited for what the future of this industry has. And especially for women and for people who have been doing this for a long time and have been, you know, just like putting their head down and doing the work like Lolita Ridmanis and Laura Karpman and Catherine Bostich. I mean, it's so incredible to see them finally recognized. They've been doing this for 30 years and they've just been working in the background, honing their skills. Miriam Cutler as well, you know, started the Alliance for Women Film Composers. And it's just it's just great. And I'm grateful just because I think that even studios and producers and stuff are trying to make an effort now just because I see how many more projects I'm getting pitched for. And I think obviously it's because of the experience, but it's also I think people are making it more accessible and trying to at least get people like marginalized groups in the room so that then the productions can make the best decision, but have all the options. Because that's really what, again, had a lot of conversations with a lot of white men about this, where it's like women and people of color aren't trying trying to like take jobs away from the white men that deserve it necessarily. It's more there just hasn't been a chance to be in the same room to then have the best person be hired. And I don't think any woman wants to be hired because they're a woman. I think we just want to be included in the pile of people that are up for a project kind of thing. And I think that's slowly happening. Which again, like, like I said, it's frustrating it's taken this long and that it's still only slowly happening. But, you know, at least there's this progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've hit about an hour. I'm so glad you're able to come join me. And I know it was fairly early for you there. So I'm so glad that you're able to, to come on. And even though you only had one cup of coffee, not fall asleep at some point. I was making sense, right? Yeah. 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 And I feel like we could have kept talking forever. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad that 
we connected on Twitter and, uh, you know, kept in touch. And I'm a fan of everything that you write and share. And I think the scoring community needs people to advocate and kind of remind the average person that music is a big part of film so that's much appreciated obviously well i i mean thank you so much that's so that's really cool to hear 